Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great uh, in COVID adjusted terms. Thank you to you and to Megan for holding down the fort while I was gone. I am now coming to you from sunny Florida. And so I have made it south. I did not make it back to Georgia, but I did make it south. Um, Spend a little time with my parents for the rest of the year. It is one of the silver linings to the COVID catastrophe um, is that I can do my job from anywhere. So get to spend a little time with the family. On this week's podcast, we are going to catch up a little bit. I, for one, have been a little bit out of touch as I have moved, um, but we are going to talk about the latest going on in Georgia politics related to COVID. Um, It's been notable in the past couple of weeks that Governor Kemp has sort of upped his criticism of his critics, including publishing an op-ed in the AJC rebutting their coverage and asking that the AJC be a part of the solution and not the problem. However, that criticism of Governor Kemp may be warranted because as a state, we are moving in the right direction on on COVID. The case numbers are declining. They have been declining for a few weeks now. Uh, But that decline comes from previous highs that dwarfed sort of the initial experience of COVID in Georgia, um, the the significant caseloads that we saw in the late summer, in July, and into early August. We are coming down from that peak, but the numbers are still high, and there are concerns related to schools, concerns related to universities, all of which are opening, and many of which want to have students back in classrooms. Um, so we're going to update on where that is. We're going to react to last week's Republican National Convention and talk about whether or not anything that happened at that convention gives Republicans momentum in our state, um, gives them a chance to hold on to the state for President Trump, for one of the Senate races, or even further down the ballot. Um, you know, as listeners know, we've talked about this chance Democrats have to take back the state house. Um, So we'll see if Republicans did anything that would potentially blunt Democratic momentum in the state. So, Luke, let's start with this op-ed that Governor Kemp um, had published in the AJC. Um, The first line from Governor Kemp here is, Georgia is making progress in the fight against COVID-19, but you wouldn't know it from reading the state's flagship newspaper. He goes on in this op-ed to defend the state's response to note declining caseloads, to note improvements in things like hospitalization rates, in the transmission rate. Um, And then he says that the AJC and their coverage, which he calls a tabloid rag, says that basically their coverage is part of the problem and they need to be part of the solution. Luke, the takeaway that I have from this, sort of the main message reading between the lines to me is, Governor Kemp saying, get off my back, we're trying, the numbers are better than you think, and the coverage does not reflect that, and so Kemp feels the need to defend both his response and and the reality that he sees from all of the data and, and everything to do with the state's response. Is that the message you get from this? What message do you think Governor Kemp is trying to send in his op-ed here? I I mostly agree with what you're saying. Kemp is saying here the the and I I really do highly advise everyone to read this. It's not very long and would be easy to read. It's not only that he's saying we're we're doing well. Is that I mean in his mind we're doing the only thing that is possible. There are no other alternatives because Brian Kemp has made a decision, and so if that is the decision Brian Kemp has made, that must be the only path possible because he knows all and has decided this is the best course. And the reason, and there's a reason why I'm framing this thing in this very ridiculous hyperbolic way, which I am acknowledging, and it is because of like the reality on the ground of what's happening in Georgia compared to other places. Because, yes, like, again, with the all, you know, the available information we have, I am not a contact tracer. I am not getting fed this information by secret sources. So we're going to go with what is publicly available. Georgia is doing Bagger. But the the thing that I am frustrated by Kemp's op-ed is where his focus is at, because his focus is at it just his his rhetoric around this entire thing is so bizarre to me because he's so obsessed 
with perception. That that's that's what I, I I'm just fascinated by this op-ed about because nothing in this op-ed mentions like what the stake is going to do about this problem because like people are still getting sick people are still dying and that to me should be unacceptable you know it's one death is still a tragedy even if we've reached the point where there's so many deaths that it's a statistic um and and kemp just doesn't seem to think that he is he's so overjoyed by the triple a bond rating georgia maintains uh, and and that is his bigger priority than people's lives, and that continues to be the case. And the reason why that is so clear is because he wants the AJC to have a you know front page above the fold uh, article about how great it is that in this time of tragic mass death in the United States and in Georgia, the thing you should be really caring about is our triple bond rating. And be the only real problem Georgia has is that the AJC is being mean to me. Whereas, and I'm powerless. I, there are no powers of the governor that could make this better. That That is his thesis. And what I think the important thing to take away from this is looking at what has happened and what is happening and what is going to happen um, in all likelihood, it shows why the thesis of this op-ed is, for lack of a better term, bullshit. Several things are true all at the same time. Like, you know, assuming he gets the numbers precisely right in the op-ed, the seven-day moving average of new cases is decreasing. It's getting lower. Positivity rates for tests are getting lower. Hospitalizations are lower. At the same time, they were coming from levels that were pretty high already, and looking at just, you know, those figures about statewide totals, I think somewhat obscures emerging problems in schools, in universities. You've seen sharp increases in cases at schools like Georgia Southern, um, Georgia College in Baldwin County. You've also seen increased cases there. And to me, the, the big college towns, particularly near where you are in Athens Loop, to me seems like a ticking time bomb given how many students go to UGA, how they are all returning, and and how I've heard from from people on campus, and, and you can describe your experience on campus, you know, much better than I could, Luke, um, that, you know, there there are problems in the way that UGA is responding to COVID. There are problems in the way that they are attempting to protect students, whether it's you know, allowing too many students in the classroom or um, all of the things that go outside, go on outside of campus, just off campus and downtown and, and at all the fraternities and sororities. So I think, you know, both of those things are true. The numbers on a macro level are improving, but it's not clear that the, the, the processes, the protections that are needed are in place to keep this thing from spiking in environments like schools. No, that's absolutely right. Because the the problem here is is that there are two forces at play uh, in this this campus problem and and this, the uh, K through twelve education problem. To be honest, that are working in conjunction to get us bad policy results and bad information. The first one is one that's pretty obvious, and I really don't think there would be anyone on the planet who would disagree with me. And that is that young people are irresponsible. <laughs> Uh, you know, and that college kids, especially frat college kids and sorority college kids, God bless them. I know many of them and they're Craig in some ways, but, uh, especially like first year frat people, not very responsible. And so, I mean, there are just plenty of stories, plenty, plenty of leaks of people's text messages and emails and stuff of, you know, just saying that let's not get tested because they will shut our dorm our dorm or frat down if we do. And, you know, the types... And, and, like, let's even take that off, you know, take frats out of it. Like, the type of human being who during a global pandemic would go to a bar for hours, <laughs> you know, and is not, the, is not the person who would just decide they should go get tested. <laughs> if you're going to be so irresponsible in this circumstance that you will go out in public in very risky ways, um, you're not going to be the type of person who also goes to get te tested for COVID. I, I really doubt the population of people performing both behaviors is very low. So that's the first thing. Um, 
The the second category that I'm really concerned about is is basically this element that I'm seeing in Georgia and it's happening in other places, and especially in the federal government, it's very prevalent of people who are just obsessed with towing the party line, right? That like if you just say COVID's not a problem, it won't be a problem because the only way it's a problem is if you say it's a problem. And, and your prime example of this is just some of the policies that UGA uh, as an administration has put out that they say their hands are tied. Uh, by the Board of Regents, it's always their excuse, but then other colleges are doing it differently. So here's a prime example. I have many classes in which the professor does not want to teach in person and a solid majority of the class does not want to meet in person at all. But they are forced to meet in person because UGA has told them that they have to be in person. And that's the only reason. And if the majority of the class and the professor had their way, they wouldn't they wouldn't meet in person at all. Now, I will say admirably, uh, many of my professors have been very understanding of my situation and other people's situation for when, like, you know, someone in my household currently has a fever. So I'm not going to school tomorrow. And I emailed the classes that I were I was going to have to be in person for and said, I don't think I should come. And they were like, yeah, you're right. Don't come. <laughs> and, and so, like, I, I, I want to give faculty a lot of credit here because I have not come across one faculty member who was not pissed off by the situation or not at least understanding that like, hey, I'm cool being here, but if you're not, I understand, let's work something out. And so just the the fact that like that very saying human reaction is not the reaction of the administration when it comes to how they're approaching this is a problem. And probably the best way that this can be illustrated is what their initial plan was, which I don't want to go into detail here because it's so ridiculous that I would just get very pissed off. But the short version is, they were going to do a very low amount of COVID testing. I, if I recall off the top of my head, it was like 200 people a week. And it was not going to be randomized. It was going to be whoever volunteered to do it, which again, let me remind you of my previous point that the type of person who's most likely to get COVID is also probably the type of person least likely to get themselves tested, uh, volunteer, you know, volunteering themselves to get tested. And, and so... This was completely inadequate. Everyone said it was inadequate. Uh, some professors wrote a very great uh, op-ed saying that the UGA regime was incredibly uh, insufficient. There were also some uh, tenured UGA faculty who put out studies of how uh, very, very quickly this would become a very nasty outbreak uh, based on you know modeling and predictions, uh, you know based on what we'd seen around the country and, and uh, globally uh, with the pandemic and. After all this criticism and after, you know, they put out statements about how, you know, again, for lack of better terms, how all these people criticizing them were full of shit, uh, they then just magically create uh, a whole new program that they're going to do and refer to the previous plan as a pilot plan, which the first time that they referred to it as a pilot plan or as a just first step plan was in the announcement of how they were going to make all these changes and that the thesis of all the changes were was that the previous plan was completely completely inadequate and they just you know don't want to admit it and the the problem that i have with all this reaction to covid is that basically you know they they don't want us to just see what's happening and be honest brokers of like what is necessary to get a handle on this situation and they instead want to spoon feed us the party line which is COVID is not a problem and we have it under control and anything that goes against that they are you know they will criticize you and uh, undermine you and make you you know they'll just gaslight you for this concern is is how they're trying to approach it and that's just not very effective when we all have experiences at this point of someone we care about getting sick, at least. I, I mean, I don't know anyone who hasn't had a friend or family member get at least sick and explain it as like very, very terrible experience or a completely life-threatening one. I mean, that's the range, you know, for most people uh, that have gotten it. And the, the fact that we are wanting to hold them to a higher standard and that they are kind of refusing to be held to one is incredibly frustrating. A quick fact check on your numbers. So the prior uh, UGA plan had a goal of doing 300 surveillance tests a day, where they estimated they would try to do 24,000 by Thanksgiving, which is when the semester ends. That's according to the AJC. So let me just say this in defense of at least one portion of the argument that Governor Kemp is making in his op-ed. 
he, I think, is very sensitive to the idea that he cannot entirely control people's personal behaviors, the amount of risk that people are willing to accept personally, and the amount of risk that they are willing to put other people in with their own personal decisions. And so I think part of what has animated Governor Kemp's defense of his own response is to say, look, we're encouraging masks. We are encouraging people to do the right thing. And the kind of people who are facilitating this outbreak with their recklessness are the same kinds of people who, if I stand up here and mandate a, and mandate that every single person in the state wear a mask, those are the kinds of people that will not wear a mask. And then at that point, when you're implementing a mask mandate to those people who would otherwise refuse to wear a mask, what is your option? To criminalize not wearing a mask? To throw people in jail for not complying with these orders? And so I think I I have some sympathy for his argument that he cannot control the personal behavior of everyone in the state, and therefore his job as governor is to strike some kind of balance between maximizing the outcome for public health, which would be like full mass mandate, full shut down the economy, everybody stay home for two or three weeks, stamp this thing out and start over again, or full-blown results for the economy, which would be ignore the virus, everybody go about your lives and do nothing. He wants to find some sort of spot in the middle of that, that recognizes that he cannot control people's personal behavior. So I'm I'm sympathetic to that piece of the argument. However, that is only one piece of the response. And I think the rest of the response that encompasses sort of an easier to define failure of governance is the failure to have adequate testing in place, the failure to have an adequate contact tracing system in place, and then to make the decision, and this is a decision that he has communicated via the media, it is a decision that I think other decision makers like the Board of Regents for the university system and superintendents at the local level for the K-12 system Those actors have internalized Governor Kemp's position that we want to return back to normal and achieve this balance that is not maximum on public health, it's not maximum on the economy, it's something in between, but it's something that looks more normal than the path taken by Democratic leaders in typically in blue states. And so if you are sending that message, if you are moving the apparatus of Georgia government towards reopening and some sense of normalcy while encouraging the masks, but you don't have the foundation of the adequate contact tracing, the adequate testing, you know, you mentioned that UGA, you know, you walked back and and redesignated their plan as a pilot plan. All of these things that need to be the foundation to make this somewhat successful are not in place. And I think those are more easily described, more easily recognized as failures of governance. And I think that that's where the criticism of Governor Kemp needs to lie. And I think in some ways that, you know, I think we've focused a little too much on the mass mandate versus the encouragement. Like, I think he should have mandated masks too, but I don't think that that's the end all be all. No, I agree with about 95% of what you said there, Kyle. And the, the thing for me is that I would I would actually be more sympathetic uh, to Kemp if he expressed more frustration on his end of these difficulties because, like, Georgia d- does not have unlimited money. You know, it's it's not like the federal government where there are a lot of levers you can pull in a crisis to fix a problem like there is no defense production act for the state of georgia for you know kemp to get more tests and stuff like that at least i don't think there is uh you know and so because of that like i would be very sympathetic to camp he's like you know like we've hired all these contact tracers we've done this many tests we should be doing way more but you know with the limited state budget we have and the resources available to us we're doing the best we can and here's x y and z way you can help like wearing a mask and you know not wasting time suing people who are wanting to to force people to wear masks and so the the thing that frustrates me is that kemp just acts like this stuff is not necessary and that the people who 
would try to force mask mandates are like somehow ideologically other and wrong and need to be stopped because this is a place where I, I, I just thoroughly disagree with him because, you know, we mandate people's behavior all the time, especially when it's going to hurt other people because, you know, newsflash, it's illegal to drive and drink in the state of Georgia, but people still do it. It's the state's job to find ways to incentivize people to do the behaviors we need them to do to have a productive, safe society. And his just acquiescence in giving up on this project would be one thing, but he's gone significantly further and instead sued people who have taken a different approach than him. And so in, in that, that's where I, I start to lose my sympathy for him. And the, the other part of what you laid out of where I agree with you, the bigger failure is because while I think masks are very important and would be a significant help to this crisis, it is not the end-all be-all, and the contact tracing and the testing is a significantly bigger problem, probably, and would be would do significantly more to get a, a handle on this crisis, and he just doesn't act like that's part of the problem, and I, and I agree with you that part of that is the the media's fault and my fault for, for, you know, railing on him and spending most of my time on the stupid mask mandates and how he's approached those instead of like holding his feet to the fire on everything else. And so I really, really think his silence on those issues are a significantly bigger problem than the mask thing. But I think it's, you know, just another example of, uh, one of the superpowers of the conservatives of this era is that they can get our attention on these uh, less important issues and and distract us from those those conversations we should be having. And so, you know, screw you, Brian Kemp, for you know confusing me yet again. Well, but I mean, this I think speaks to the decision that was made to publish this op-ed that makes this case and not one that sort of level sets more with Georgians about what the problems are, where they are, and where progress has been made. And so I do think that is like the messaging failure here. You know, like, we've known this about Governor Kemp since he was Secretary of State, that like, he just responds in a biting fashion to criticism. And that's just his approach to defend himself to the very last man without conceding to his critics, even on, on certain things. And so, you know, you actually, I have heard him say in press conferences that the testing situation was not where it needed to be. And the state actually did in a, in an attempt to account for failures of testing in the private market, increase the amount of testing available through public sources. Like there was a large government operated testing facility opened up at the Atlanta airport and governor Kemp was critical of the private companies that have not turned around test results fast enough, but that wasn't in this op-ed that wasn't a part of this level setting. And that's not the way in which when he takes a high profile opportunity to defend his response, this is not part of the conversation for him. Um, so I think that that's, that's part of the messaging challenge there and the other thing, too, is like, you know, I'm critical of the actions that he has not taken. You mentioned there is, you know, as far as I know, also, there is no like Defense Production Act for Georgia. Georgia does not have unlimited resources in the way that the federal government does. So Governor Kemp could be out there calling for more federal resources to support the COVID response in Georgia. And, you know, we talked about this one or two podcasts ago. David Ralston has called for it. The chairs of the budget committees in the House and Senate have called for more federal assistance. And Governor Kemp has come out opposed to more federal assistance in the bill that's being debated in Congress. And if you had governors like Brian Kemp, who are more aligned with the Trump administration and more aligned with the most conservative members of Congress, if those governors were calling for more help for Georgia, that would make a difference in the negotiations on Capitol Hill. And he's not doing that. So like there are, there are, I think dozens and dozens of like opportunities for criticism on things he has done and on things he hasn't done. Um, but I think, you know, part of our role in this show is to sort of work through the nuance and work through the weeds and pull out, 
so that people understand some of the mechanisms of governance, where he has failed, and where, you know, maybe criticism of him might be a little bit off base. All right, so let's move on to our final topic for today. So we are recording um, on Tuesday evening, the week following the RNC uh, convention. Uh, President Trump was the headliner of this convention, um, obviously as the nominee. But what I found most interesting about the RNC was the decisions that the party made about how to pitch Republican governance sort of to two different groups of people in two different ways. And I'm, I'm borrowing this from several of the RNC recaps that I've already listened to that sort of contextualize this at the national level. But I think part of what we want to do is bring down that nationalized context into Georgia and see if what the messaging, the choices that were made by the RNC um, are going to be effective in helping Republicans retain control of the state, retain uh, their electoral lead in the state, both at the presidential level, for the Senate races, for the state house, you know, up and down your ballot. One of the most interesting things that I noticed was was an attempt to make outreach to black voters who may be somewhat conservative or maybe somewhat open to the idea of supporting Trump. I would imagine this might be limited to maybe older black men who don't live in cities, maybe live in rural areas, um, and who may be sympathetic to some of the arguments that Trump has put out there on issues related to to crime and um, on Joe Biden's record that that not only Donald Trump, but also other speakers at the RNC laid out at their convention last week. Most notable of that to me in a Georgia context was you had two semi-prominent black Georgians speak at the RNC. One was Democratic State Representative Vernon Jones, who um, is going to be leaving the legislature. The other is uh, maybe the best running back to ever play for the University of Georgia, Herschel Walker, who I believe is an honorary co-chair of the Trump campaign in Georgia. Um, So you had two Georgia voices there. And then Tim Scott, a senator from South Carolina, gave what I thought was actually probably the best speech at the RNC. And the one that kind of felt most aimed at broadening the Republican electorate. It was a really Um, great 2004 Republican convention speech. It was. That's when he was giving it in his mind. And that's what felt weird. But to me, the mess, you know, given all that we've watched in the Trump administration for the last three years, that speech stands out to me for being normal and being a a true departure from Republican messaging um, during the Trump era. Did you have any reaction to to Vernon Jones or Herschel Walker or or Tim Scott? And, And do you think that any of those speakers or any of those speeches sort of set up a successful push for Republicans to maintain control in Georgia? I don't know (laughs) is my honest answer. Um, I mean, like Vernon Jones, I I don't see him headlining any Georgia Republican Party conventions anytime soon. I mean, just anyone in the state who pays attention to politics knows that Vernon has a very, 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 very troubling record and similar to the president has uh, very bad allegations of both corruption and, you know, sexual assault in his uh, his history. So uh, on that sense, I am unshocked that he was at the RNC. Um, So with with that in mind, you know, Vernon Jones, probably not the best messenger long term uh, for them. Uh, But I mean, I think people underestimate the potential effectiveness of this strategy overall of appealing to African-American voters because it's sort of this strange thing where, um, you know, George W. Bush had a lot of trouble with um, African-American voters, but he did incredibly well with Hispanic voters. I kind of feel like people can miss, like, Trump's ability to appeal to african-american voters um because they are i mean very rightfully so like point out the fact that he's racist but he focuses so much of his racism on hispanic people that i think people pay far less attention to his uh racism towards other groups and he 
tries to do outreach to these folks. I think what the primary goal of this outreach is, and I think this is the part of it that they are actually hoping for and think will be effective, is that this is a way to show everyone in the suburbs who's like, look, we're not racist. Look at all the people who are not white that we have brought to this convention and are having speak. Isn't that great that we have this state rep from a state you've never you pay attention to uh, for people outside of Georgia? Like, I think I think that is like what the goal of of those folks speaking were far, far more than trying to actually pick up significant African-American support. They're trying to assuage anyone who's like, I can't be a Republican anymore because the party's just gotten too racist. It's like, look, we're not racist. Look at all of the people we're having speak who are not white. Yeah, I mean, I've heard, you know, from other commentators, too, that like, you know, that effort may be more geared at a permission structure for white suburban voters to not feel like Trump is a racist. I think, though, in a Georgia context, the place that you maybe could make gains that matters electorally in this state is if Trump and Purdue could pick up, you know, not, I mean, you know, he's not going to win, you know, 30% of black voters in the state. Like that number is just astronomical from, from where he is now. But, but if he goes from, and I don't know exactly where he's at, but if he was, you know, say he's at like 8% of black voters in the state, if he nudges that up to 13 or 14% and he does so largely by attracting to the Republican side, rural black voters who are older, who are uh, more amenable to his messaging about what goes on in cities and his criticism of democratic elected officials in cities that in some ways lines up pretty well with the strategy that Republicans have to maintain control of the state by running up their margins in rural areas. And so that in that context, I think it's notable that it was mentioned at the RNC that uh, president Trump signed a bill that guaranteed funding for HBCUs for the first time um, in their history. And both uh, Trump and David Perdue have prioritized HBCU funding. Um, Perdue did this in the Farm Bill by working with with David Scott over in the House on the on the Democratic side. And I think if you're getting a little money for HBCUs that are located uh, typically outside of city centers, and you can have that as sort of a positive talking point, that I think gives you at least a foot in the door with some of those voters and some of those voters who are probably a little bit more conservative in their, you know, their demeanor or their outlook, maybe a little more open to you and your arguments and may, you know, may think all of the, the liberals saying Trump is a racist is a little overblown. And, and here's something he get good. He and, and David Perdue did in our community. I think that could be somewhat meaningful. I mean, it's a, it's a low bar. It's a low floor to start with, but if you're looking for, any sort of positive outcome from that outreach and this focus, I think that's sort of where it is. Yeah, I, I, I agree that that could work. Um, I think the primary thing that would get in the way of the success of that strategy is the other 50% of that convention, which was, I mean, Trump really isn't even race begging anymore. He's, he's far more of race chumming. He's just throwing out everything he possibly can uh, onto his audiences uh, when it comes to this stuff. And I just, I just don't know what the effectiveness is going to be here. Cause to talk about what other people are talking about, um, the narrative that the race is going to get tiger and has gotten tiger because of all of the unrest in Kenosha, to me just reads as like very unscientific BS from pundits because historically speaking, there is always a bump for presidential candidates after their conventions. Now that bump has been huge sometimes and it's been very small other times, but there's always a bump. And so like, to me, it's not a coincidence that during the week of Trump's convention, his polling gets a little bit better. And 
it's also so insignificant. It's not like Biden went from being up nine to up one or down by three and now Trump's ahead. I mean, like he's gone from like plus nine to plus seven. This is nothing. It's a blip. And that's not to say that maybe this is the beginning of a trend change, which is possible. It would terrify me, but it's possible. But I think it's just so early to like be like, oh, Trump's found the magic bullet. He he found the argument. And And to me... The reason why I really don't think it is that is people, I would think, want a president who will do things and will fix problems. And this is, you know, goes back to my, my Kemp criticism. And I just don't see the strategy of saying, I am the president of the United States who's doing a good job. And there's all these riots happening because all Biden is terrible. And just by running for office, by the chance of him, him being president, the riots are happening, and the only way to stop them is re-electing me, because then the riots will just stop magically. And or the alternative is they'll get worse if Biden's president, because he'll do things to address the issues that the people who are in the streets protesting care about. Like it's just so mind-numbing and insane this argument. But maybe it'll work. I don't know. But I, I really don't think it will. And I don't think the slight blip in the polls we've seen thus far are a reflection of it working. And so as far as like, will this strategy that they did during the convention, you know, help them win? I really don't think it will. And the primary reason is because like, it's not like Trump was beating some other drum and then the convention happened and they've done this great reset where Trump is now doing an entirely new strategy. Like, no, this has been his strategy for months. He's been hanging these exact arguments for months. And like, while there were some more, uh, you know, racial representation in the Republican party. And as I did mention before, and I think actually does merit mentioning again, Tim Scott gave a really great speech. It was a speech during 2004 when George Bush was still president, but it was a great speech for 2004. Um, and he, you know, he deserves credit for that. At the same time, like, that is the last time we will hear from Tim Scott in this cycle. Um, and we're just going to be in crazy town until uh, November and well past November. And I just I just don't see that being successful without some outside factors coming into play here. Um, because he is the president and the insurgent outsider... You know, we have to bring law and order really only works if you don't have the ability to bring law and order right now, uh, which he's bringing neither law nor order. So I think it's worth pausing here to remember what success looks like for President Trump. He's not going to flip the script and win 54% of the popular vote. That's just simply not going to happen. He's never had that level of popularity on his most popular day in office or on his least popular day in office. It has never approached that kind of level. So if he was to win re-election, it would be likely that he would win again via the Electoral College while losing the popular vote, likely by millions of votes, and he would broadly be seen as continuing to be unpopular. Um, and I think it would be, you know, a, a re-election victory for President Trump, I think, would be about as confusing to us as his original victory was, given what we see in the world and, and, and how the things that he does create more chaos, create more problems, and don't solve them. Um, so, like, I don't think, I mean, I don't think we're going to live in a world where suddenly it feels like Donald Trump is being a successful politician. I do think it's possible to live in a world where he continues to muddle through, but barely improves a little bit on his numbers and then is able to win re-election via a combination of the Electoral College depressing mail-in balloting via interference with the post office and telling people that mail-in balloting is unsafe um, and just sort of like getting lucky again. I mean, I think that's sort of what success looks like for him. Um, I do, though, you know, the what you mentioned around the polling is interesting because it, it did seem like today, it seemed like there was a sort of brief freak out about the polls narrowing a little bit and then the margins seemed to increase in the polls that came out today on Tuesday, the day that we're recording. But the one, I think, sort of notable polling result 
contextualizing this down to Georgia is prior to the Democratic convention, um, there was a landmark communications WSB poll that uh, had Georgia um, that had in Georgia President Trump leading Joe Biden 44 to 41. And then this evening on Tuesday, there's another uh, poll from the same pollster that now has Trump leading Biden 48 41. Now, these are two polls. Again, these are individual snapshots in time. And and this does line up perfectly with the post-convention bounds. But that, to me, is a, you know, if you tell me that Trump is winning Georgia 48-41, if that's the reality, then I think that he's much closer to re-election than if he's only winning Georgia by, you know, half a percentage point to a percentage point. Yeah, I I don't disagree with that. I want to see that poll when it comes out again in like two weeks or something and see see where it is. Because if it stays at 48, then yeah, you have a good point. If it reverts back to the mean, which I would not be shocked if it does, um, that that would be my expectation. Because the thing, the thing, I I, I love Georgia. I love the people of Georgia. <laughs> I also love the Democratic Party and those two loves very rarely meet <laughs> they have before but they very rarely do and so i i i mean i expect trump to win the state i think he'll be narrow i think he'll win it by less than he did last time i'm more hopeful for ossoff um but you know georgia is still a, a state where republicans uh have an advantage and that's it's getting less and less every year and i think the message that they decided to run with at the convention did not help them and did not help them for that long-term project. And I think both of those things together and combining that with what Kemp has been doing and, and what we talked about in our previous topic, I think long-term this hurts them. And I agree there. so they, they might skate by with this election, but I, I really think it, it's going to be one of the last times they do where this method and this coalition they've built is successful. Um, so with that being said, I, I think what primarily happened is you had a lot of Trump voters who were like, oh, I don't know, like came home more than like, there's a bunch of people who were thinking about buying and then switched. So to me, I think this begs the question because the RNC put together this sort of two pronged messaging strategy, amping up the racism for the base and then turning around and telling the suburban moderates that Trump is not as racist as you think. And here are non-white people who support Trump. I'm still, I mean, I'm still sort of ruminating over this question of where Republicans will go if Trump ultimately loses this election. And you saw the two paths that they have before them at this RNC. You could see more candidates like Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, you know, reverting the GOP in terms of rhetoric and, um, back to sort of their 2004 status, um, being a little more controlled, a little more composed, and in at least rhetorically seeming to be more earning of like leadership responsibility. Or you could go full on, full Trump base, nominate Kimberly Guilfoyle for president in 2024. Um, or, or I mean, more realistically, pick up somebody like they, they would never nominate a woman. <laughs> That's true. So they'll nominate Tom Cotton instead. I, I mean, the the answer to this question lies in history. Taking this out of the Republican versus Democrat context, I feel like the majority of the time, when a party is out of power for a significant amount of time, they moderate. Like, I mean, Bill Clinton compared to Jimmy Carter as far as how conservative he was, significantly more conservative. And I, I think I think there's just a lot of instinct that if you start losing elections that you want to do things to help you win them. And one of the best things to do typically in American politics and moderate. But you can the Republican Party has sometimes done the opposite. I've mentioned it several times before, but, you know, the examples of Colorado, Virginia, um, you know, some other states where they start losing, they end up going crazy and then they just accelerate their losing. Um, and I, I really think that is a viable option for them. And they have a history of doing that on the state, uh, on the national level, because after Barry Goldwater lost, they went with someone who was even more radical than Ronald Reagan. And he just, event, you know, he eventually won. Um, and, and, and they tend to want to push the envelope in that direction. And I think 
they've really pushed that just about as far as it can go with Trump. And so maybe they finally hit a wall and they'll bounce back to the other you know, direction, head towards the middle again, um, which I would love to see because I think uh, having a competitive same party is better for the country and my blood pressure. So I, I would love to see that. But, I, you know, the, the, they're still on the crazy train and I don't know if they, they've gotten to their final destination or not yet. So is there anything else from last week's RNC that scares you as a Democrat about Republicans ultimately being able to win races, including the most important one, the presidential race this fall? Is there anything that they did that you felt was effective and Democrats should be concerned about? I think it's more of an imperative for Democrats to make it very clear what the stakes are and to not be afraid to call out the BS. Um, One of my big frustrations from this convention has been the narrative that like Trump somehow has found this magic message that's going to defeat Biden. Cause the thing that has like frustrated me beyond words is the media's enabling of Trump's lying on the subject of like Biden's uh, beliefs and push uh, regarding violence and regarding the defund the police movement and stuff like that. Because basically like everyone knows that Joe Biden, in the media, I mean, not not the whole country, but everyone in the media, if you are a reporter, if you are paid by CNN or Fox News or any other establishment that, like, is real, like, you know that Joe Biden has said he does not support the defund the police movement and that he condemns violence. And he said it a million times. He had a speech, like, yesterday that he said it. Senseless violence of looting and burning and destruction of property. I want to make it absolutely clear, something very clear about all of this. Rioting is not protesting. Looting is not protesting. Setting fires is not protesting. None of this is protesting. It's lawlessness, plain and simple. And those who do it should be prosecuted. Violence will not bring change. It will only bring destruction. It's wrong in every way. It divides instead of unites. Destroys businesses, only hurts the working families that serve the community. It makes things worse across the board, not better. No, it's not what uh, Dr. King or John Lewis taught, and it must end. And there will still be a commentator on CNN just, like, screaming, grabbing the cameraman, being like, why won't Biden condemn the violence? Why won't Biden, why is Biden giving Trump this opening? And it's not real. They just keep saying it because they want to be edgy and they want to, like, make a new point because all the numbers show us for quite some time that Trump is losing this race. And they, they're just grasping, grasping as hard as they possibly can on this fake narrative that Trump has now found this new message that I am a chaotic president and I piss people off and I don't solve anyone's problems, which has resulted in riots. And for that reason, I should be reelected because it'll only get worse if Joe Biden's elected. And they act like this is a good narrative and they start reinforcing it by pretending that Biden isn't saying anything about these issues and that he's avoiding them. And that's just not the truth. And it's really, really annoying. But I think the lesson is important here, which is this is just making it so incredibly clear that Joe Biden has to go above and beyond what would be required of any other presidential candidate to make it clear what his position is and what he thinks about a thing and making it unarguable that that is his belief and not just for like people who are paying attention, but for the person who watches like 30 minutes of news while they're making their breakfast. Like that person needs to know unquestionably every single major position you have on like what's going on during the day. And so you just have to repeat it so diligently and repeat the same thing over and over to make it unquestionable to those people because the other side and the media just aren't going to do a good job of making that case for you. And so while I don't know if this one magic bullet argument, uh, you know, fake magic bullet argument is going to work, if, and I, actually, ironically, I believe Trump has actually hired the Swift Boat guy, the guy who did the Swift Boats against Kerry ag, or maybe um, he's been funded by some other source and he's now going to start like running campaigns against Biden. If some other issue comes up, because I really will be shocked if between now and Election Day and the 62 days we have left, that there do, is not some other big significant issue against Biden that comes up. 
you have to be so unambiguous and so strong in your response to that that no one can question what your position is. And so far, I worry that Democrats might not be disciplined enough to do that to the level that will be required. It was news in the last couple of days that Biden will resume an in-person campaign. You know, this is a campaign that really has been constrained by COVID. Trump has basically campaigned from the White House. Uh, he also hosted his big Tulsa rally, so he sort of flouted the the public health response here. Joe Biden has been much more constrained, much more respectful of public health guidance, and has largely campaigned on Zoom from his basement. Do you think that resuming some in-person campaign events helps position Biden to rebut those charges about his record and his views more effectively? Or, you know, he's or do you think he still faces a problem on that front? I, I definitely think barring some situation where like a bunch of Biden staffers get sick or Biden himself gets sick pausing to pray that that does not happen. Um, barring those situations, I think it does. Um, because one, he can display better behavior on like how to um, do this. And then the the other thing is, and again, this is not my original thought, but it is very obvious and should be restated. I really think Biden is at his best when he is playing president on TV. When he is doing the thing that the president of the United States should be doing, like walking to a community, going into a community and calming people down rather than making it worse. Like that is when Biden is at his best. And to the extent that his DNC convention speech was one of his better speeches he's given in his entire life, I think a significant strength of that speech was that it felt like a presidential address rather than feeling like a convention acceptance speech. And so to the extent that he can just mimic being president and try to get covered in that way i think that is where he will succeed and do a better job and just being forceful well i think that is a good place to leave it for this week uh, we are ready to get back into the regular swing of things uh, we are now uh just about 60 ish days from election day um this month we are now in september and this this month some people will be allowed to start Voting early in some states across the country. Um, I, I will probably so vote. You probably this will. Month. What? When does early voting start in Georgia? Uh, the earliest day you can actually receive an absentee ballot uh, legally is September fifteenth. But I've heard some murmurs that it might not be until a couple days later that they actually start mailing them. Um, and then early vote starts in October. I can't remember the exact date off the top of my head, though I should. Oh, we will. We will fill in those dates for you as they get a little closer. But yeah, people will start voting this month. Honestly, I'm just ready for it to be here. It's been a long four years. Let's figure out if we're going to have to do four more. <laughs> That's right. Figure out how many, uh, you know, I need to budget out how many times I need to visit the therapist. So on that note, we are going to leave it there and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.